Hello again, and welcome to Crosswinds, a series of conversations with America's healthcare leaders produced by the Vizient Research Institute. I'm Tom Robertson, Executive Director of the Institute, and I'm pleased to welcome back Kathy Jacobson, President and Chief Executive Officer of Freighted Health in Milwaukee. Kathy and I left off last time discussing the powerful force of inertia and the difficulties that health systems face in rationalizing where they do what, the tough choices involved with clinical program consolidation. Kathy, thanks for coming back. Thanks for having me back, Tom. I, I must be doing okay so far. You're doing great. Thank you. You know, before becoming a CEO, when we were talking last, you mentioned that you were, you'd been a chief financial officer. What do you think is most broken in the current healthcare financing model, and what would you do to make it better? So I always describe healthcare finance as this Byzantine Jenga game. And if anybody can't remember what Jenga is, that's that game where you have wooden blocks that you build a tower and then you pull them out one by one. And, and whoever lasts the longest without crashing the tower wins the game. So kind of probably two things behind that. Our reimbursement system is Byzantine and doesn't make sense, you know, quite frankly, different payers, different um, ways that you get paid, that payment doesn't necessarily attract to value. Um, medical specialties get paid less than surgical specialties. How do you explain to these very important physicians in your organization that their practice, quote unquote, loses money? Um, learned very early in my career that that is not the way um, to get physicians on board with you and really learn to say this is not a value statement about the work you do, but this is the financing system in which we work. And how do we make that all work together? And unfortunately, how we all make that work together is the Jenga game. And I think there couldn't have been a better example of how fragile that Jenga game is to play than our most recent pandemic. So any of us who have spent any time, even either at a macro level or a, a higher level as any kind of health system leader has to understand the differences in reimbursement and where you make your money, where don't you make your money, or if you've spent your life studying it, um, like I did for 20 years, you realize that you actually make the margin to hold the whole thing together and be able to reinvest in your organization on very, very few things. And that there's a lot of stuff in the middle and then there's some stuff that you just plain have to do to provide services to your community and support the whole that lose a lot of money. And so that's a Jenga game. And when you start pulling them out in little cogs, or quite frankly, all at once, all at one time, when the government asks you to shut down everything that you are doing, quote unquote, elective, which we have learned we hate that term because when we say elective, that just means people aren't dying. That doesn't mean it's plastic surgery. It means one of my patients is going to have to live in pain a little bit longer by deferring that knee surgery. That's what we were asked to do. But that's where all the money is. And so we saw with devastating consequence to the healthcare system writ large across our country, what happens to us when you pull that stuff out? And then what happens when that very fragile supply chain, which we were all running for efficiency, doesn't work? And you can't get masks and you can't get supplies and you can't get testing and you've got to pay usurious prices to get that stuff in the door to protect 
your team, your nurses, your physicians and everything, and you got no revenue coming in the door, that's what happened to all of us, you know, back in the spring. So if anyone ever needed to have a demonstration project about how fragile our financing system is, we proved it, you know, back in the spring with that. And that's why I call it my Jenga game. We all know that this system needs to move away from this current fee-for-service, non-value-add reimbursement system, which in sense exactly what we will do exactly what that incentives to do. So it's fee for service. We will do more and get paid more. People just do what they're incented to do. They're not bad people, but they know that if we do more things, we get paid more money. And that reward, quite frankly, still today in most of the markets of the colleagues that I talk to, and certainly in my own market where I'm in today, is a higher reward system than anything that moves us towards value. So even though we've all been trying to build a value-based system and that was certainly spurred upon by the Affordable Care Act, we're still, in my opinion, playing around with it in most markets. Some markets are much more mature, certainly not in our own. And we have invested and we have done things to deconstruct our own volume. And we have done things to reduce our utilization, whether it's of a whole day of care, whether it's reducing drugs that we utilize, all these other different kinds of things. All of us are working on that stuff. The industry writ large is working on those things. But the problem is, is that we haven't yet put enough at risk on both sides, payer and provider, payer letting go of some of that risk, provider getting the up and down, you know, part of that risk to make it meaningful. You know, so in our system, and again, probably early on, I don't know, more than five years ago, but less than eight years ago, uh, we started to get very, very busy at the Academic Medical Center. And we knew we had an opportunity in length of stay, thank you, Vizient, in your clinical database, but because we knew we had an opportunity there and we really worked it. And we actually got to top decile for a number of years, you know, in terms of length of stay. And that worked for us because we had demand that allowed for a backfill. And so we got much more efficient throughput, all the things that you should be doing, you know, in terms of running your hospital. And then we started, and we had started our value-based contracting at the time. We had started working with some payers. And then we found out the biggest winner to our reduction in length of stay was United Healthcare because we were reimbursed per day. And every day we dropped, went to their bottom line. And they made way more money than we did, you know, off of that arrangement. And we had no risk-based contracts with them in place at the time than we did. And so that was actually when, and we weren't, it wasn't like we weren't asking because we were. So at that point in time, we have an opportunity in the Wisconsin market there. I think we're the second um, highest state with prevalence of provider-sponsored plans that we were able to invest in a provider-sponsored plan with another healthcare partner in our market um, so that we could get in the game, you know, so that we could actually share in the risk and that we would know what our Medicare bid was, our Medicare Advantage bid. We would know whether we wanted to be in Medicaid in the state of Wisconsin from a health plan contracting perspective. Um, we would know the market better by being closer to the employers in terms of the commercial market. Um, and we have continued to build up our competencies by having that health plan um, we are the second largest Medicare Advantage health plan in the state of Wisconsin. So it's a pretty vibrant four and a half star health plan on MA. And now we actually do have full risk contracts with our own health plan. We have more risk than we have had in the past on Medicare Advantage 
with some of the big national payers and we're in a Medicare ACO. But, and I think most recent count, we're probably somewhere around 150,000 lives somewhere among all of those risk arrangements, including our own employees. And we are on the upside, you know, in terms of what we're able to bring in, it offsets the cost because we invested early um, and we've invested of our own money with no return or little return for a number of years. And now we actually are on the upside of that investment. It's not close to what we make on the fee-for-service side, not even close. Mm -hmm. And in fact, if I actually did the metrics on how much volume we have voluntarily deconstructed on our own, I'm probably not up on the upside. If I look at that, if we had just stepped back and crossed our arms and said, we're gonna fight fee-for-service to the death, we probably would have made more money over that time frame. But we're trying to move ourselves into that value-based construct. There just isn't enough money that's moved. Um, I believe, to drive it. My other premise on working in healthcare now for over 30 years is that we have to be pushed to do it. The ACA was the last impetus to make us do it. it. In my opinion, because the government controls so much of our payment between Medicare, um, mostly Medicare, but Medicare and Medicaid, that if it's not going to happen unless they force us to do it. That's my own opinion. Let's take the conversation in that direction. As you know from, uh, from having seen our recent work, I'm a believer in the proposition that prices uh, are a problem for medicine in America and that absent some external um, impetus to change, we're, I share your view, we are unlikely to do anything from the inside out. It's very likely that something's going to have to happen to us uh, to make a systemic change. Rather than asking you to to uh, design a healthcare system from scratch, let me throw an idea at you and ask you to react to it. Pretend for a moment that we had no ties to the current way of doing things. We weren't um, bound, hidebound, by the way that we traditionally have done things. What if we found ourselves in a situation somewhere down the road where healthcare was uh, viewed more as a public utility than a privately provided not a single payer and not a government uh, run healthcare system like England, but a privately provided healthcare system where what we were paid was viewed as, as a rate regulated public utility. So all of the payers, government and private, paid the same prices, and the prices were not uh, allowed to, to uh, get out of hand. Um, and maybe where we compete is on access, service, and quality rather than on price. What would you think about that kind of a system? I think that would be great because the price problem is that Byzantine financing problem. Mm -hmm. You know, where we have to have, as I always say, I would never want to shut off access to a Medicaid or a self-pay member, but then multiply how many managed care members I need to be able to pay for that. And that's the situation we're in, you know, every day. You know, how do I subsidize my sickle cell clinic, which we are the only ones that provide that service in our area to the benefit of the Medicaid program in the state of Wisconsin? How many more managed care payers or patients in the suburbs do I need to be able to pay for that? You know, and that leads to unintended consequences in a non-value-added system. So pricing is absolutely, and the dichotomy of pricing, you know, I mean, when I tell people the difference between Medicaid, Medicare, and even my payer who pays me the least, they literally look at you like they don't believe you. 
I mean, the general public does not believe you that that's the difference for the same service. And that causes, you know, obviously then a, a variety of whole issues related to loss and, and how we cover those things back to the Jenga game. So that would absolutely equalize things out if we had pricing neutrality. You know, one of the things that I'm often struck by is, um, you know, that we all as thought leaders in, in healthcare, we all agonize about health disparities. Wouldn't we at least take a step in the right direction if we leveled the price that was paid, irrespective of, of the payer status of the patient, so that you could be payer agnostic and, and take care of folks based on their clinical needs, not on, on the dollar signs that were hung on to them as they walked through the door. Absolutely. And I think the other thing we have to rationalize is we do have to start paying for parts of the system that today have traditionally been under Paid. And I would throw behavioral health on the table there. You bet. Yep. We get what we pay for. We don't pay for it, so we don't have enough of it. Yep. And that's from every single aspect to services, to providers, enough psychiatrists, enough, you know, social workers, you know, we just simply don't pay for it. So we don't have it. And now not only has it been insufficient for decades, um, it now, unfortunately, we're in an epidemic of behavioral health issues, not just, I mean, that started even before the pandemic and have been exacerbated by the pandemic. So um, yeah, first it's payer, you know, neutrality in terms of pricing, but then we have to rebalance some of the services that we even pay for. Primary care physicians who can't, you know, go into primary care unless they go into an employed model because they can't possibly make money? And then why in the world would they sign up for all this medical school debt to go into family medicine? You know, I mean, the, the economics don't work. And so then therefore now, you know, do we have enough primary care physicians? So again, even if we did pricing, you know, neutrality, we've got to rebalance still, I think, where some of those payments go. And I, I will put in a plug um, for the academic medical center where I've spent my career. We also have to recognize that at the top end, um, we have to pay for that stuff. And today, you know, we subsidize our very, very high-end cancer care and our research and, and treating, you know, and teaching those doctors that everybody in the planet wants to come over here and be educated in the United States. Somebody's got to figure out how to pay for that stuff because otherwise pricing neutrality would wipe us out. I think it's more than than all-payer rate regulation. I think it's price leveling. Not everything paid the same. But we need to pay a little less for surgery and a little more for medicine so that uh, you're not um, put in this situation the next time that you have to lean into a medical catastrophe um, and, and slow down surgery, that you're not pulling the, the wood out from a stack of uh, exposed Jenga pieces, right? Exactly. Let's talk about the, uh, the idea of, of disparities and come around to to talking about um, something that everybody is aware of, and that's the, the social determinants of health problem. What is Freighter doing to alleviate uh, some of the negative manifestations of poor social determinants of health? And if, if money was no object, um, not meaning that you had as much money as you wanted, but if, if money was more fungible, if you could move the dollars around a little bit, are there things that you'd like to do to address uh, the manifestations of social determinants of health. Yeah, sure. So I think that 
a lot of us had gotten started on this journey before the pandemic. And if you didn't, you will now. I mean, it just absolutely lit up um, how those social determinants of health, like having to go to work to an essential frontline job, put you more at risk, you know, for COVID. Um, and that the underlying healthcare status you have, because you live in the middle of a food desert, um, you may be in poverty, you might not be able to afford your medications, all those different kinds of things. And we all we all know that. So I would say a couple of things that we've moved on, actually moved on before the pandemic got slowed down a little bit and now are, are putting back in place. First, we're getting the data. You can't fix something if you don't know what it is. You know, so I think for a long time, we were more anecdotal. It might have gotten written in someone's record, you know, that they were homeless or that they had food insecurities or, you know, that they had lost their job recently or something like that, but we couldn't collect it. Well, now the EMRs are providing that, you know, so we actually, we use the Epic system. We are requiring now it, not that it just happened because that physician or that nurse or that social worker documented it. Now we are asking everybody to ask every patient a series of questions to make sure that we can identify one of those factors or multiple factors are influencing their life. Because what's influencing their life is influencing their health way more than anything that we can do. But we have to know about it. So first you have to know about it. So we do that. The second thing, which is really exciting, um, and again, community-wide effort, but COVID slowed us down a little bit that we can get this back up again. Once you have it in your EMR, now what do you do with it? You know, obviously you want to make sure that you line your patients up with those social services that are available. Well, my social workers and discharge planners and primary care physicians don't necessarily have all that stuff at their fingertips and know what to do. So we are actually working in a community-wide partnership with a software that actually we had identified and brought to the table so all of the adult health systems, children's too, um, in this market are actually using one software tool called NowPow, which actually will take the data from our EMR and match it up with our community 211 service, which is kind of the community library directory of where all of these social services are. So whether it's a housing, food insecurity, help with jobs, um, all of those different types of things. You know, my car didn't start today. I can't get to work. There's references there that can find that through this software connection. And then we can get that patient referred into that community agency. First, it's collecting it, knowing some of the issues you have to address. And then how do you find and take that next active step and help your patient, you know, be able to get there. So we're really excited to take this from kind of a, a one-off um, boy, maybe this office or this practice has really been doing this because of their patient population to make it more, you know, universal and not only at Freighter, but actually across our community. It's been a fantastic community uh, partnership for us to be able to do that. So that's just an example of where we're starting. The other thing that we learned, you know, we all get asked to do a lot of things. You know, we are all of us as healthcare organizations are community anchors. We're usually one of the largest employers in our area. Um, we spend our money locally. Um, so we really are economic anchors in our community. And we get asked, you know, for a lot of things, obviously. So as we started to line up our resources that we were going to put into community, we needed to prioritize where that money would go. And certainly, first and foremost, we have to address the needs and our community health needs assessment. So 
if there's an issue on dental care in a certain community, we actually gave a grant to help a new free dental clinic get built in one of the communities by our hospitals because that showed up, you know, in terms of our community health needs assessment that made sense, you know, for us to do. But we've also made a very conscious effort to take on what we think is probably the next biggest driver outside of healthcare access, which is economics. So we know that a lot of the things that I just talked about are related to poverty. You know, if you don't have a family um, sustaining wage, you're going to have food insecurity. You're going to have a problem with a car and transportation and getting to a job. You're going to most likely live in a neighborhood who has violence issues, you know, all of these other kind of things. If we can get you into a family sustaining job, you start to lift, you know, to be able to do that. So the other big place that we look at to make investment is in education and particularly pointed towards those communities that are vulnerable, you know, and need that help in those schools that really have shown that they can make a difference in their community. We usually ourselves start at the high school level. Um, and then in terms of supporting, you know, some of the high schools in these programs and the scholarships and internships and, and all sorts of other things up the line. Um, some of it's just bringing the kids in. Some of it's actually scholarships and money, you know, that we do. But we see that as a huge win-win because it's an investment in our community. But quite frankly, I need people to do my jobs, so we always are looking for hundreds of people. We have open positions every day at every single level of the organization. So how do we help build that workforce? So I wish we had more money to do that because the hard thing is, is, you know, when things get constrained, you know, that's, that's some of the first stuff to go. But we've really lived up to that commitment. If I had more money or more fungible money and wanted to really make a difference and our system, I would put even more money than we are already into behavioral health. Um, because I think, again, it's just so underserved. We have been underserved as a health system, you know, doing it. And we know it has a huge impact on ultimately medical care also as well. And so we are beefing that up, but we could do so much more. I think you're spot on. I think probably because you uh, came up as a CFO, uh, it's easier for you to see the economic advantage to avoiding demand for undercompensated care for you. So if you can do something to make your most vulnerable population need less services for which you're not adequately paid, losing less money is just as good as making money. It's all green. So the idea of investing in mental health uh, capabilities as a way of helping these vulnerable populations need less, I think is a masterstroke. Yeah, it's spot on. Now it would be better if we were sharing in more risk, you know, to do that. But at the same time, I told our department chair of psychiatry is just fantastic to work with. You know, when everybody started to build value-based models, I'm like, John, you're going to go from being, you know, pardon me, but the stepchild who always needs a subsidy because they do, to being the resource everybody's going to want. And I'm going to need you to help me be able to get there. And he's been a phenomenal partner on not just psychiatry, but integrated behavioral health models in our primary care. How do we use digital tools for people to manage depression and anxiety? You know, thinking about different ways that we can spread those resources. And we have done that because we've seen that this has a real impact on, on the cost of total care. It just does. 
You know, I always like to give uh, folks a chance to learn a little bit more about you as a person. And I have it on good authority that you're an accomplished home contestant when watching the uh, television show Jeopardy. So what's your secret? And there's no need to phrase your uh, answer in the form of a question. I would say probably being well-read, watching a lot of movies, and having a photographic memory. And yes, that's true. (laughs) So um, one of my team members actually asked me that one time. And if I can't answer it, my film student daughter is sitting right next to me, and I pitch it over to her. You know, so as a as a team, we are Jeopardy champions. <laughs> well, Kathy, uh, between you and I having been uh, geographic neighbors for so long and then sharing stories for years now of raising daughters, both of us having the experience of raising daughters, I'm immensely grateful for your friendship over the years. And I'm really pleased that uh, listeners got a chance to get to know you better. Thanks a million for being with us today. Thanks, Tom, for the opportunity. And it has been fantastic to spend an hour with you um, combined across this, even if we can't be in the same room. Uh, we'll, we'll fix that just as soon as it's safe. We'll, we'll be someplace in the same place at the same time. Yeah. Thanks again, Kathy. As we introduce this new series of podcasts, I wanted to pause to thank our colleagues at SG2 for their help in getting us started. Our good friends Trevor Durin and Kelly Richard invited me to be a guest on their podcast, and it was a great opportunity to learn a new medium. You can hear them every Wednesday tackling strategic topics in healthcare on SG2 Perspectives. So thanks to Trevor and Kelly. Thanks again to my good friend Kathy Jacobson. And thank you for listening in. We hope you find these conversations to be thought-provoking, and we look forward to welcoming you back for future Crosswinds. I'm Tom Robertson. Until then.